Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Well, thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you for everybody who put this together and arranged this. Um, I'm going to start with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Your will, not mine, be done. And just an added bit in my own words, I'm very, very nervous. My heart is beating very fast and my palms are a little bit sweaty. Um, but I am looking forward to, to sharing um, my message today. Um, and I just hope that God helps me say the things that need to be said, that the people who are here and listening, I can't see anyone. I know my home group has got me on a projector, so shout out to them. Um, and I just hope that the people who here need to hear their message and that I can um, share where I'm up to today. Um, when Daniel asked me what I wanted to talk about, I had just come off listening to one of Harvey's Wednesday night specials. Um, and he spoke a lot and keeps repeating about the forgetting disease. And before um, even thinking about it, I just typed in, I want to talk about the forgetting disease. Um, but I always like sharing a message, uh, like a current message or something I've got now. So I waited until last night to sit down and really think, you know, what does the fact that this is a forgetting disease mean to me? Um, because I know it resonated and I know that it's something that no matter which stage along I am in my program, and by the grace of God, I'm four years and five months and 10 days sober today, one day at a time. And I feel like at all stages, this is a forgetting disease. Um, and I've just jotted down a few thoughts to help guide me as I go through this. So here's the, the juxtaposition of what I constantly remember and then what I always forget. And it was quite um, like profound for me just to sit down and do some of this writing. So I remember with clarity the first time I acted out and the first time I broke another boundary, but I do not remember that after a while I was doing it without even wanting to do it anymore. I remember the climax. I also forget the guilt, the shame, the despair, everything that completely drowned me afterwards. I remember how the guys and drugs of my choice made me feel so totally alive. I forget that at that very same time, I was very suicidal. So I have this like alive feeling, but also this death feeling. And I only remember the one half. I remember like literally feeling like f fireworks were going off every time I would cross a boundary or do something forbidden. But I also forget how absolutely far I felt from God as I understood him then, which is completely different to now, but I'll get to that later. I remember feeling, and I think I heard this in one of the previous amazing speakers, is that I remember feeling so close to these strangers, but I also forget that I was the loneliest person on the planet. Um, I remember every compliment that I got from a guy, I remember how it made me feel, but I also forget the kinds of things I had to do in order to get that response. I remember feeling the freedom of doing whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. 
And I forget that I could only do that because I had alienated myself from absolutely everyone around me. And I can do what I wanted. I could do what I wanted because I had nobody to be accountable to. Again, that like dichotomy. So I remember feeling like this feeling of satisfaction when I like managed to hook someone in. Um, and I forget that it couldn't have been that satisfying because I kept feeling like I had to do it one more time. This time would be different. Um, I remember feeling that power that I could sometimes like feel like I had a hold over the men that I interacted with. But that was only the part I forget is that that was one part of a double life that I was constantly trying to juggle, constantly trying to maintain. And that was really ripping me apart from the inside. Um, I remember I remember texting and being on my phone and flirting and chatting, you know, for for all hours. And I but I forget the part that my hands used to go so numb from holding the phone for so long and it used to fall on my face because I was so tired. Um, and and I remember I remember like feeling like I'm going to click on the exact link I want to watch next. But I forget that it was the birds that reminded me it was the next day in the morning. Um, and so since this is very much a forgetting disease, I want to remind myself and uh, talk it out loud of some of the big, you know, moments and some of the milestones in my program, in my recovery that I feel like I've come a long way in or you know, understand to some level. Um, and I just want to share share that um, because that's where I am today. So I'm going to start um, almost at the beginning. I'm not going to share what it was like for me. Hopefully by that whole introduction, you could see like it was this pleasure, pain, more pain than pleasure kind of situation. Um, and when I came into the program, I did not get sober straight away. I thought I was ready. I really, really did. But there was just... Uh, I wasn't I obviously wasn't ready and I obviously wasn't desperate enough. And that's the key thing. When I got sober this time round and hopefully for a long time, um, I was absolutely desperate. I thought I was desperate when I came in, but God needed me to get a whole lot more desperate, you know, to hit a whole lot more rock bottoms before I was able to make some uh, meaningful change in my life. Um, and I think that this desperation actually stood me in really good stead because I speak to a lot of women and a lot of women who I speak to um, don't know if they're an addict or not. But mostly what I hear from them is I want to carry on acting out. I just don't want to feel all the guilt or the shame. And I just don't want to have the negative side effects. Is this the program for me? And I have to say that for me, I was so desperate I was so done. I so did not want to carry on on this path that I knew even if I didn't act out again for the rest of my life, something had to change. I couldn't carry on being the me that lived inside me. Um, and that desperation helped me to get a sponsor straight away. Um, and I didn't stick around the program trying to see, could I work this out? Because my, you know, I'm quite like, I like, I like philosophical debates and, and bouncing things out. And, and I just realized like, my own thinking is what got me absolutely into the mess that I was in. And there was no way I could think this program, think myself out through the program. So I did try and like intellectualize some things and calling sober woman being like, but what does surrender really mean to you? I just had to chuck out the window. I just had to do what my sponsor told me to do. Um, and my sponsor actually says um, that I was one of her only sponsees. She really believes that if I would have, she would have told me to jump out a window, I would have jumped out a window. Um, and I guess I guess that's something I'm quite I could I could look back and be proud of now but it also just shows like how desperate I was in a desperate state I was in 
Um, and I took the actions even if I didn't want to. I had this, um, even though I didn't know if I wanted to be sober the whole time, I just had this willingness that I was going to do whatever it takes. Um, and, and you know, for example, things like getting a filter. I was so against that. That wouldn't stop me acting out. I could get through any, you know, filter that there is. Fact is, my sponsor told me to do it. Fact is that actually it did create that tiny bit of a gap between the first thought that comes into my head saying, go act out and having the device to do it. So just listening to things, even if it wasn't like what I agree with most, actually helped right at the beginning. And also I had to put in um, boundaries that were more than just the sobriety definition for me. So I actually had to say that if I would do X, Y and Z, it would be considered me losing sobriety because that's where I was at. Um, and so, for example... I knew that I was absolutely completely powerless over um, chat rooms. And I knew that once I had gone onto a chat room, there was no way I would know when, when I would next come off it. Could be hours, could be days. You know, I can't continue in conversation for over days. So the fact is that had to be part of my sobriety definition. And I had to be a little bit uh, stronger than the law because that's what I was powerless over. It wasn't good enough for me to just stick with the sobriety definition. And this is also something that keeps changing for me. Still today, I play with it um, with the help of my sponsor and other people in the program. I don't decide these things for myself. Um, one of the other big things that I had to get to grips with was my higher power. So I grew up, I grew up um, a religious Jew and it really complicated things for me. Um, I thought that I knew God. I thought that, you know, the God that I'd been taught in school was the one that was uh, my God. I thought he was punishing, uh, unforgiving. I thought he was waiting for me to trip up. I thought I was so uh, I could never succeed because I always thought that I was expected to do the absolute right thing. So if I did the wrong thing, well, there was a special place in hell reserved for me. And if I did the right thing, well, that's just what God wants me to do anyway. So there was so such negativity, you know, in my self-talk, you know, the things and I can still do this now, like the things I thought God was telling me um, were actually like my own instruments of growing up. So I really had to abandon that old God. And it was difficult. Um, I remember like being on the phone to sober members and being like, how do you want me just to create a new God? If I believe God doesn't forgive me, why should I listen to you who says, no, treat God as someone who has, you know, unconditional love for you. And I was like, I can't just make that jump. So I didn't make the jump, but I didn't intellectualize it either. And I had to start looking for proofs in my life that God was actually slightly, slightly more loving than I made him out to be. For example, the fact that I never got pregnant. Well, that's a loving God. Or the fact that, you know, I came to a program where there may be a solution here that might work for me. Or the fact that I was holding down a job. I mean, just yesterday I had um, parents evening and I'm a primary school teacher. And hearing some of the parents say to me, you know, from what you're saying and how you're into interacting with my child you really get my child I really feel like you understand my child and that literally brought tears to my eyes because not only was I the most egocentric self-centered person I couldn't get anybody around me because I was so disconnected for them I was only hardwired in my own faulty beliefs and cognitive distortions to hear a parent now speak to me and say like you know my daughter loves being in your class or my son loves um you teaching her and you really get her or him um it's really special for me and it really is a as a result of this journey anyway that was a that was a tangent but 
basically being being able to take proofs in my life and pin them on my current higher power has really helped enhance my religion. You know, I said to my sponsor at one point, I'm done with religion. I want to take it all away. Stop. Go back to zero and slowly take on the things that I'll be genuine at. And she very uh, gra- uh, graciously said to me, don't throw away the baby with the bathwater, stick with it and owe- you owe it to yourself to start getting answers. And I did. And I'm still on that journey. And actually, this has helped me tremendously with the next part one I want to talk about, which is my prayer meditation. So prayer, again, was something that was so formal, something out of a book, words I didn't understand, language that was archaic. Um, And I had to start with prayer and it had to be my own. And slowly but surely, I'm now able to merge the two. I'm I'm in the middle of... um, writing and listening to I'm listening to a series of lectures like um by a by a rabbi on a certain uh, part of my um like a silent part of my uh, religious prayer and I'm writing down the bits that I connect to and then writing down how it connects with my program and I'm really really focused on merging these two it doesn't have to be one it doesn't have to be the other um the 12 steps has greatly enhanced my um my Judaism and my religion um and I really believe that it can um help others when we start to listen for the you know where they where they connect um so that's the prayer bit meditation so I absolutely used to I used to call um a sober woman up in the program and ask them what to do and they used to say they used to say just go ask God go ask God and that used to get me so mad because I didn't know like how to just ask God and I didn't know how to just listen for an answer and even if I did listen for an answer it always somehow ended up being exactly what I wanted God to say to me um, and to help to so that I can get away with doing whatever I wanted to do next so it was definitely um, um, a journey for me to actually understand what it means to pause to pray and maybe I won't know what to do next and I'll still wait and maybe I actually will. I check it in with other people to make sure I'm not um, playing God's voice because I definitely have a pattern of doing that in the past but meditation and I'm not able to sit alone in the silence. I use, um, what's the app that I use? Calm and I do their daily 10 minute meditation and it's a guided meditation so I don't feel like all alone in the silence. And sometimes, I mean, you can hear you can hear how fast I talk. This is my brain. My brain is like on fast forward most of the time. So sometimes for a meditation, the whole meditation, I'm just thinking about my to do lists. But each time I go off and I'm like, okay, Malky, you've gone on to a to do list. And I gently bring myself back. And probably two seconds later, I'm either future tripping or past worrying. Um, And sometimes my whole meditations are noisy, but at least I'm giving myself that 10 minutes of a day where I can just be. So now I do know how to pause and pray. And, you know, in a, in my school, there's absolutely no quiet places. So sometimes if I've like had a, a difficult interaction with a, an adult or child, I just go to the toilet for two minutes and start breathing because that's my only quiet place. So I really look forward to those moments in my life. Um, the next thing that I would like to say is that a massive part of my program is being of service. Being of service is my is my 12 step work. I speak to my sponsees almost daily. Um, I speak to my sponsor almost daily. And that just gets me out of my head and out of myself. And very, very often, if I if I um, pause and pray and I still don't know what to do next, my next thing is how can I be helpful to someone else? Thank God I'm in a job where it's so easy to have. I got, you know, 30 children looking up at me every day. It's very easy to be helpful. Um, but actually, you know, at my weekends, when I'm at home, it is it is more of a challenge. 
but that always helps me just find the next right thing to do. Service has actually also been self-care. This has been a big one for me with the help of my sponsor. I completely neglected myself. Even, even at the beginning of my program, when I was so focused on just staying sober, I forgot to do the small pleasurable things in life. Like, do you know how much I look forward to my bubble baths right now? Do you know, like when I finish a half term of teaching and I go and get my nails done, like these are small pleasures that I just didn't even used to treat myself with. So it's great that I'm able to know the small things that I like, go and do them, reward myself. And I don't need that high of addiction anymore. You know, it is something that I look back and I I still connect to it. I still connect with that absolute high. And I used to like, I even went through a process of kind of mourning the fact that I would never feel that high again. You know, and it's something that very much um, and I'm going to talk about marriage later. Um, but like in my marriage where, you know, sex is allowed, I could never I had to get over the fact that I would never, ever feel that same high of crossing a boundary of sex being the forbidden or breaking rules. Um, and and I feel like being able to tap into the smaller things in life that give me um, pleasure is a different kind of immense pleasure, but it's a way more satisfying one. Um, and so I'm going to then talk about what happened after I worked the 12 steps. It took me around a year. Um, and then I started dating um, and I, w- I dated sober, thank God. Um, and one of the um, things that people ask me a lot is like, what, was there any lust there? And I, and I can only talk from my experience when I say there was absolutely no lust and there was no room for lust. I was constantly checking everything with my sponsor. I put in boundaries that went against my nature in order to ensure there'd be no lust. And I think like I remember only one time slipping in texting um, my husband now quite late at night. Like that was something that I knew was a danger zone for me and I wasn't going to go there. Um, Another question I often get asked is, were you um, honest about what you went through before? And I was. Um, To a certain extent, I had guidance from my rabbi who said, be honest, but don't tell him anything that will mean he'll have pictures of people in his head. Because obviously it's, a you know, the Jewish community, he would know some of the people that I, you know, used to act out with. Um, So I was able to be really honest. Um, And there's something that I really am quite passionate about. And that is this saying that you're in the program, if you are in the program and you're doing the program work is something that I was so proud of. I was telling my sponsor, I was telling my uh, then uh, my future husband, but I was telling my husband the things that I do to stay sober, that I say I get on my knees every morning and every evening. I call my sponsor every day. I take calls every day. I do a 10 step before I go to sleep. I'd have a DSR partner. I go to meetings. I review my day you know, nightly. And, and these things are things to be proud of. Like if I I got to a place where if my husband then um, would have said, sorry, I'm not up for this. I would have walked away with my head held high because even though I struggle today and my program is far from perfect, I still have a lot that I can hold my head and um, hold my head up and say, if you can't, you know, if it's too much for you, this uh, essay stuff, walk away now because this isn't something I'm willing to um, back down in. And thank God that developed into a marriage. I have, uh, it was our anniversary a few weeks ago, our third year anniversary. Um, and believe it or not, I have a lust-free marriage. And I don't even fight lust. And I think that's a huge 
unbelievable blessing because nothing in my story, and for those of you who know my story, there was just no way that my life was going to go on any other trajectory than, you know, end up either killing myself or, you know, getting dangerous diseases and, you know, other other people's children. There was no way it was going to be anything but. So the fact that I can turn around and say my marriage is lust free is something I'm tremendously grateful for. Um, and it also, it also, I think this matters is how I've come to learn what lust is, because lust can be different things for different people. It's not as obvious as this bottle contains 14% alcohol. So I've had to work out what lust is for me. And because of that, I can say there is no lust in my marriage. Um, and it's taken me a while to get over this, like, what is this lust definition, you know? When I came in and I called this uh, um, organization a cult, lust was definitely one of the words that I was like, nobody uses that in the real world. Um, but actually, actually, this is what I think it means for me. For me, and I, one of my um, previous sponsors actually defined it as, you know, like when you're traveling in a country, well, this doesn't happen in London, but imagine you're traveling in a, in a country lane and you see a deer come, come out onto the road. And you have your headlight and the deer just freezes and the deer's eyes are transfixed on your headlights and they don't move. And that transfixion is the image I have of lust, where it's that animalistic hunger base desire and drive that's uh, getting my needs filled um, I, I can't describe it. It's it's mostly a feeling that I tap into with a bit of the words I'm like uh, peppering around. But it's a very animalistic kind of hunger. And I know that that's not in my marriage. I know because I know what it feels like and it doesn't feel good. Um, so that's something I've come to you know understand. And I don't take it for granted. I absolutely don't take it for granted. Um, and the last thing I just want to share is that my, my program is is not a fixed program. It's not what it looked like when I was working the steps thoroughly, you know, pen to, uh, pen to paper for many hours um, over the course of a week. Um, and it's, and, and I'm constantly adapting my program to what I um, now need. And I don't take it super seriously. Well, I realize that could be taken out of context. Let me explain what I mean. I treat it like a social experiment. So for example, if I know that I've started series as something I have a love-hate relationship with, sometimes um, um, I know that once I start, I tell myself one series and because of just my addictive personality, four later and I'm still watching. And I know then I treat it like a social experiment. So I kick it out my life for a bit and then I bring it back later and see what happens. And if I can handle it and I can watch one and turn over and go to sleep, then I know it's okay and it's got a place in my life. But if I'm once again, like just clicking that next YouTube video and I'm, you know, it's Thursday night and I'm down the rabbit hole, I know it has to leave my life for a bit. So in that sense, things are adaptable. Um, like I said before, my program is far from perfect. Um, I know that just personally, I've really struggled with um, going back to face to face meetings from Zoom. Um, I know that in Zoom meetings, like when I could fold my washing, clean my kitchen, cook dinners and have an essay meeting at the time, like that was the ultimate. So it's definitely been a struggle and hard for me to um, to leave the house back to face to face meetings, even though there are, you know, a million reasons why I know I should. 
that's just one of the things I'm struggling with at the moment. Um, but speaking to people, varying my program with, you know, I'm starting to go to a few more AA meetings because there's some, you know, real solid sobriety and there's a lot of joy and laughter in the rooms. When we go into, when I go into an SA meeting, we are treating, you know, we are being, this is something so serious. Um, and I know Harvey speaks about laughing a lot too. Um, and in these AA meetings, they just chuckle and chuckle and laugh and it's it's great for me to be around um it's so easy for me to just change the word alcohol with lust um and i think you know i pray that i continue to have this open-mindedness so i can see what's working in my program what's not what needs to be in my life what doesn't this willingness to keep doing the right thing i do have this drive that i just want to do the next right thing and even if my willingness to stay sober is less some days than others I overall more want to do the next right thing more than anything in the world. And the last thing is just this honesty, this honesty um, with my program, this honesty with God, this honesty with my husband, honesty with the relationships I now have in my life. Um, and I thank God for the program I've got today, for the people that are in my life, the relationships I have, and for all of you for listening to me. So thank you. The first question, Marky, is uh, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I'm disgusted by former religious prayer and can only connect a personal talk with my higher power. I still want to connect the two. What do you think? Here's, here's what I've come to. That was my story first. First, I only connected to what I had to say because I'm gonna say what I feel right now and that's really genuine. But I had to come to a place where I've, I've signed up willingly to this religion, yeah? I want to be a part of this religion and I want to try my best at it. So part of my religion is formal prayer, whether I like it or not. Now, I can choose to not do it. I can choose to do it resentfully, eye rolling, um, hate every minute of it. Or I can choose to try and integrate the two. So I can look at, um, you know, I can look at a prayer. And what I'm doing now is thinking, how does it connect to my program? And by that way, I, I insert my personal prayer in and around some of my formal prayer. You should just know, as a note of honesty here, I'm not moving very fast with it. I have a certain amount that I do every morning um, before I um, go to work. And there have been times when I've been able to do more, but some, it's not sometimes, it is a two step forward, one step back for me because I'm able to include that extra bit for a week, two weeks, a month, two months. And then I don't wanna say it anymore. You know, so so I'm real with it. I'm real with the fact that I enjoy my my private prayer with God in my own words. I'm also real with the fact that I want to be a part of my what my religion has to offer. And I will try when I can to integrate the two to the best of my ability so that I don't have to do um, one or the other. And the other thing is what I've learned is I want a relationship with God and I know that better people than me have written this formal prayer. And I know that for any relationship, I've got to put in work. So trying to connect to that formal prayer is work. And I'm willing to do it for my relationship with God. Wow, powerful. You know, one thing I'd love to just say about what I heard today is just it was really, really amazing is that I can only imagine that there's newcomers out there today that are hearing a story that's a, a miracle because they're they can't see how, you know, what they're living now what you're describing. It's a story of hope. And I love when you said, 
you know, I know what it feels like and it doesn't feel good when you referred to lust. That's my experience. And that is just so true. And boy, to get to that feeling, that's what I would say is recoiling from as from the hot flame. It doesn't feel good. So uh, we have a couple of questions and I'm not sure. One is, Malky, if when you make it to five years continuous sobriety, one day at a time, would you consider serving as an alternate delegate or a delegate at the General Assembly for Europe and Middle East region? No pressure, but it's great service. <laughs> Talk to me when I'm five years sober. There you go. Thank you. Next one would be um, one of the women on the on the chat here asked, how do we get in contact info for outreach? Um, I'm a bit hesitant to give it out because I know that there are um, I know that there are like men on the call also. Um, But I suggest that maybe we can um, set something up with some of the women in essay or Seiko that they can go and maybe you could um, give your information to Laura or something like that for. Sure. I mean, women who are in touch with other women will eventually get back to our women's WhatsApp group where I'm on. So that's how you could find me. That's true. And so, yep, uh, that would be a good place is get under the women's WhatsApp group. So have you had multiple sponsors in recovery? And at what point did you realize you should change sponsors? Okay, I have had I have had multiple um, sponsors, and they have all taught me something that I needed to know at that point. I've had sponsors that are so harsh, I end up crying after every single phone call. Um, And I've had um, a sponsor that has relapsed that I had to leave, um, and then actually ended up going back to when she got back on the bandwagon. Um, So I have had to change sponsors. Um, I didn't do it based on my own thinking. I didn't do it after an argument, a disagreement, or some emotional outburst, which is exactly the time when I want to change sponsor. Um, I speak about it to other people. I speak about what I'm what I'm getting, what I'm gaining. Um, and I think it's a conversation that has to come not just from within me. I just have to check in my thoughts with, with reality. And, you know, more sober women can guide me on that. Thanks, Melky. Uh, Thad, um, filling in for Daniel. I'll try to fill his shoes. Um, next question. Uh, you mentioned some things about acting out that you tend to forget. Are there any things about recovery that you also tend to forget? I know that there are very many tools for this program. So there are times where I'll try the ones that I always go to and I'll forget about the other ones. But keep going to meetings and keep speaking to other people and everyone's telling you what's working for them. All right. Next question. As a single woman in the program, I've extremely appreciated your talk and the hope you gave me talking about your recovery and marriage. I am trying to stay connected to people and my higher power in order to help with the loneliness I feel. But I still struggle. Do you have any advice for me in this time? It's really difficult. I, re- I really hear that pain and I really he- hear the loneliness. One of the things that's helped me in terms of being able to be in my head and my body is starting to become my own best friend. 
And I don't need people around me to help me with that. So I mentioned the small pleasurable things. I mentioned the fact that I treat myself, you know. Um, um, I used to just not want to spend money on myself because, well, I used to spend money on acting out, which was generally on other people. But, you know, now I'm able to go to a shop and just get a takeout because I've had a really difficult day and I want to feel good about myself. And I'm, I'm learning more and more that the only person that's stuck in my body is me. And I have the power through my choices to make that as comfortable or as uncomfortable as I want. Um, and there are some there are some times that um, I'm able and more willing to connect to other people. And what I'd say is when you are willing to be around, whether it's friends, family, the fellowship, connect, connect, connect. Because when you become or when I become um, less willing or more isolating, then there are people there that I can turn to. So build up those connections when you're doing well so that when the loneliness kicks in, you've always got, you know, hopefully a house that you can just go sit on someone's couch, you know so that's what I'd say to that <laughs> that's amazing uh next question <clears throat> you talked about lust in your marriage can you speak a bit about it uh, in your mind having no lust and having healthy passion okay so this is actually a really hot topic for me because about um three months ago I started to see a sex therapist now I've always been in therapy for for a large proportion of my, um a portion of my life um, and I started to feel thank, like, thank, I was like a million blessings that my sex and marriage was going absolutely fine and great and better than I ever could have expected. I got to a point where I realized that too much sexual trauma, sexual drama, and just sexual experience had happened in my past that was holding me back in my marriage. And I'm not going to get too specific because of this context, but I can say that I was noticing that even though there was no lust in my marriage, because I was so fixed and trained to not lust, not fantasize, hold myself back, it was preventing me from moving forward in a very healthy way. So um, the program doesn't have the answers for absolutely everything. The program has helped tremendous areas of my life. Um, but there's professionals um, who, who, you know, I'm seeing one now who's really able to help me and say, which part of this is your addiction and which part is the past that's just impacting your life now, which gets confused in my head with addiction. Um, and I'm really working on um, not only having no lust in my marriage, but allowing myself to have that, you know, the healthy spark, the healthy passion um, that you speak about. So, you know, perhaps if you speak to me when I'm five years sober again, I might have more of an answer, but it's definitely something that I'm aware of and I'm doing something about. That's wonderful. I have more than seven years from the peak of my unmanageability. Today, my life is amazing on so many fronts. I have a really tough time remembering how bad it was and how quickly I can get there. I know it mentally, but I have trouble internalizing it and therefore take actions of lust, pull back from fear and do it again a month or two later. How do you internalize the pain of your past so you can recoil from lust? Number one, speak to newcomers. Yes. When you, all I have to do is be in a meeting when someone comes in with this dark face, these sunken eyes and this black energy around, I don't read energies, but I'm saying this like, you know, this dark uh, sense about them. And in my head, I'm going, 
he or she lost sobriety. And when I speak to, you know, I used to be the uh, female, like first responder, like when someone wants to know, should I join the program in the UK? I used to be the ones on the other end of the phone. And when, when I start talking and they hear a part of my story and they burst out crying and they get honest about where they're at and, and how they can't stop and they want to stop and it's getting worse. Like, I don't need a better reminder than that. I don't have to be able, and I think it's unhealthy for me to be able to tap in to the exact pain I was in, in the deepest, darkest parts of my addiction. It's okay for me to have some distance from that. Obviously not to the point where I then think, oh, maybe I can try that website and see if I still have the same reaction. Um, I think I heard, like, I think I heard Harvey say this, um, where he was like, it may be that I, this is paraphrased, he might not have said this, um, it, it may be that I can go on that website again, but am I really willing to try it if I know what the consequences are? So it's a mixture of hearing other people's stories, knowing that my slips leave me feeling so bad afterwards, I would hate to know what like a real fall felt like. And just, you know, sometime one of my parts, one of my um, journey in recovery was writing myself a letter reminding me. Now, I don't have to read it very often. In fact, hardly at all. But I know if I ever need a reminder, I can always read that. Oh, for some people, it could be their step one, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Newcomers, step one, all help me too. Um, could you please describe your meditation? Are there any helpful meditation tips, video tutorials you can name, suggest, and describe that you use? Okay, so I do two things that work for me at the moment. If you ask me this when I'm five years sober, it'll probably change also because it's a really updating thing. Um, I do guided meditations. That way I don't have to be left alone with my thoughts most of the time and someone else is telling me what to do. Um, so I'm able to concentrate on my breathing. It also helps me fall asleep tonight at night when my mind is racing. Um, and you can find them on YouTube. You don't even have to buy the um, apps, but I, you know, sometimes the apps work for me. The other meditative like thing that I do um, is com in, in combination with prayer. So let's say I'm in tremendous amounts of fear or let's say, um, you know, I get uh, triggered. Um, I will pray it out because I can't lust and pray at the same time. So sometimes it is meditate. It's I don't know if you'd call it meditation or not, but I would just be like, please, God, help me. Please, God, help me. Please, God, help me. Please, God, help me. And, um, you know, repeating that helps me to snap out of it, just focus on something else. And I can out pray the lust with um, prayer. And that's um, something I guess it's meditative kind of that's that's worked for me. But it's such a personal thing you just got to find what works for you like some people will focus on one word and that will help them some people like lying down some people like sitting on the floor some people like doing it with their eyes open and just having like a, a light gaze and some people you know need to be ha have the quiet some people need to listen to something in the background some people like the nature sometimes I'll go on a walk and I'll be like what does my feet feel like on the ground what does you know my the where can I feel the wind on my body so I would really like get into this, research it, find find things that work for you because it could be really life-changing. Thank you, Malky. What was the turning point for you to help get you from being not ready and or slipping to thank God gaining traction in recovery? Desperation. There was, for a long time in the program, not a long time, about a year when I was backwards and forwarding and relapsing, I was saying the words, I'll do whatever it takes. But when it came down to it, I was always, yeah, but I won't do that. Or, you know, the one thing that you're asking me to do, no, 
I can't do that. I'll do everything else. Look how desperate I am. But I wasn't willing. And when I came to the point where I was like, I am willing to do whatever it takes, that is the point where things started to change. Thank you so much. At, uh, at what point uh, should a single person start dating? My sponsor's rule was after a year of sobriety, you got to ask your sponsor that. This is a long one, so I'm not sure if there's a question here. Comment. I very much appreciate your comment about the joy and laughter found in AA meetings. I've been in SA for four years and have found and have trouble maintaining sobriety for more than several months at a time. During the pandemic, I found a large AA Zoom meeting back in May, and I've been attending every night, even though I'm not an alcoholic, simply because there is so much joy and decades of sobriety at every meeting. I've even made many strong relationships with AA members in that meeting that I keep in touch with. I am now searching for local in-person meetings uh, to attend. Uh, so that's not in the question, but thank you so much for reinforcing the point for me. Um, what was your experience after the first few months or half a year of sobriety when the initial desperation or willingness might've faded a bit? Was What was helpful for you when you hit that point, if at all? Yeah, those first six months were not fun. They were not fun at all. They were so freaking painful. Um, I just remember, like, I thought I had got rid of all my bottles. I thought that I had, you know, got rid of this person. And then the next person would text me, hey, want to meet up? And I used to have to go through the whole thing of, you know, I used to, uh, um, um, like, break off contact by going, like, I've learned so much for you. I'm so sorry I need to do this, you know, but goodbye. Um, and then it would be so easy for me to get back in touch with them because, you know, oh, forget what I just said. But my sponsor literally dictated in my ears. I wouldn't, I would cut out my thinking and I would just type what she said please don't contact me again and I used to send it and I used to be like but that's so mean it's gonna hurt them please don't contact me again and I remember like you know crying sitting on my hands forcing myself not to pick up the phone or you know leaving my phone with somebody else because I knew that I couldn't have it that night um the first the first six months are really difficult but it's almost like your every success that you have in those first six months, it's like building a muscle that's easier to use the next time. I'm not saying it's always easy to respond to triggers, but if I have sent that text, please don't contact me again 10 times, the next time it happens, it's that drop more easy for me. If I know that, you know, leaving my phone with a, you know, with somebody I'm accountable to is going to help me that night, it's that much easier to do it the next time. So my first six months were building up muscles that I use today. I'm still training those muscles because my addiction comes up in all different areas. Um, but the just every success you have, first of all, celebrate it. And second of all, know that you're doing your future self, uh, your future sober self a favor. Um, how did you meet your husband and did he have any prior experience with 12-step recovery um, so because, as I mentioned, I am Jewish, I'm not going to go into the whole dating process. It's not an arranged marriage, but it is um, um, like my parents were involved and we like found out about him before I actually met him. Um, so, you know, find your local Jew to explain to you that process. Um, he did not have any experience with um, with uh, 12 Steps. Um, he 
I also had to tell him that part of my journey in recovery is being diagnosed with bipolar, which, by the way, very much explained the crazy highs and the sexual promiscuity and the crazy lows and the sexual promiscuity. So anybody who's like also dealing with mental health stuff, um, they definitely interacts with the addiction. I don't know what came first. I don't care what came first. Um, I deal with both. Um, so he did have a few questions about how both the bipolar and the sexual sexaholism impacted me he did a very grown-up thing of speaking to my sponsor um, and my sponsor was able to tell him like you know she's taking her insulin every day she's going to be okay if she stops big damage you know so and he that was a risk he was willing to take so my he spoke to my sponsor he didn't have so much prior knowledge but he did ask questions and I gave him very honest answers and like I said like I was willing to to you know keep my head held high if he if he was going to say no to that that would be okay for me at that point. Thank you, Malky. Do you ever have crazy days as a teacher where the morning slash nightly prayer gets thrown off? What do you do on a day when you're exhausted or don't feel like you have time to call someone? That's okay. <laughs> So much of the tools in this program, people think need to happen every day or I'm not doing it properly or I'm not doing it really. There are days when I'm more tired and I can do less. Am I, you know, am I aware that I'm um, not doing it? Yes. If like if I look back on my day and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I, I haven't done this, then that's, you know, I, I <laughs> hold on a second. Sorry, let me just re reframe my thoughts on this question. I definitely don't manage to do everything all day. I definitely am aware the next day that I didn't do it the day before. I'll check it in with my sponsor or I'll just try again the next day. And as long as it's not happening again and again and again, it's going to be okay. No one lost sobriety because they forgot to pray one evening in their daily routine, you know? I mean, maybe they did, but not that I'm aware of. Thank you. Um, how can I apply the first three steps on a daily basis? I did the inventory, but I kept relapsing and I feel that I am not putting it into action. Okay. So the first three steps after all the written work is for me. When I get out of bed before I'm even standing, my feet hit the floor and I'm saying, God, I am powerless over lust and most other things in my life. When I engage in lust, it becomes unmanageable. I want to give myself over to you as I understand you to do with me as you will. And then sometimes, like I told you, I did those toilet breaks in school when things are too noisy and I can get on my knees again there. Um, for me, it's I just say the step one, two and three when I'm on my knees. I have a sponsee who was struggling with with, um, her really late bedtimes. So she at 11 o'clock uh, has a has an alarm that goes off. She gets on her knees and she does a one, two and three. So find those times where you feel more powerful or where you feel your life is more manageable. Uh, sometimes for me, that's just getting up in the morning um, and just say the steps one, two and three. It doesn't have to be, you know, once I've done the written work of writing out my step one and you know, saying, um, um, working out who my higher power is. Those are just three things I do on my knees in the morning. I don't do it every day because my, my program isn't perfect. Thank you. The topic was a forgetting disease, but you didn't forget anything. What, in your opinion, brings me to forget in five minutes what my sponsor said? First of all, I have, I do forget. 
I sat down last night and I said, what does this forgetting disease mean to me? And I went back there. Yeah, most of the time I'm not in a place where I'm going back there to remember. So I generally do forget, which is why I had to write that out for me. I couldn't even remember it to say it. (laughs) Um, I think in response to what can you do if you forget what your sponsor says, maybe just get one instruction at a time and call her when it's done or put a reminder, or get an accountability partner, or do it straight away. You know, think of strategies where it doesn't have to be, you forget. Write it down, make it a, make, make it a checklist, you know, have a book, things my sponsor tells me to do. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I struggle a lot with shame. How do you deal with shame? Okay, so shame for me um, is is very much something that I would think is in my is past I I'm not ashamed anymore I have a really you know crazy story that got me into the program every time I used to say my mo's in my meeting that's the things the ways that I used to act out my face used to go red sometimes today I can still share my mo's and I know the people in the room can probably say it for me they've heard it so many times and I still can sometimes go red but that shame isn't a pervasive kind of shame. I don't, it doesn't make me feel any less of a person anymore. Like this is a part of who I was, but I'm doing so much to stay sober today that I am almost proud of the things that got me here. You know, one of my huge step nine moments, I mean, I made a, just before my wedding, I, I said, uh, I did a step nine to my head teacher And I said, and what can I do to make it right? And she says, who knows, Malky, maybe we'll ask you to come back to our school and you'll help girls like you. And a few weeks ago, I gave a talk in my old high school. And obviously, I didn't go into sex addiction, but I did talk about social media and the Internet. Um, And I was really able to, to stand there and say, you know, yes, this is all everything that happened to me. And it's shameful on the surface. But today, it makes me who I am today. You know, when I am able to uh, pick up the phone and to, you know, a woman who's having an affair and being like, I've been there too, I'm not ashamed anymore. So I think like while I'm in the program, um, sorry, while I'm in the problem, it is shameful and I do feel the shame. But if I'm living in the solution, there is nothing to be ashamed of anymore. Anything I'm doing now, I'm using my experiences to see where I can help others. And that makes it almost, almost worth it. Uh, This person says that they also struggle with a bipolar disorder. Um, do you get therapy on mental disease or just trust your program? Nope. I see a psychiatrist and I am taking medication. Um, I need the medication to help take the edges off my highs and my lows. Um, and I still, you know, I'm not catatonic. I still have, you know, fluctuations. I still have episodes, um, but it's not as crazy high and it's not as crazy low. And I'm able to stay sober throughout. Um, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not a, like a psychologist kind of therapist for it, but do see um, like a psychiatrist every now and again. Thanks. Um, I have heard many speakers say that the turning point for them was despair. What can I do if I haven't had this sense yet? And I feel that thinking about my losses and addiction results don't work. 
Okay. So there is this concept that I worked through with some other people called hitting rock bottom while still on top. So there are some people who have absolutely hit rock bottom. They're in prison, they're divorced, they're, you know, fill in the blank. There's loads of, you know, people in this program who have really hit a bottom. Um, and then there are people who haven't. Um, and, and I believe that there's a way to say, I may not have hit bottom, but because I relate so much to that guy's story and that guy's story and that guy's story, that chances are, if I continue on this path, I will be them. And you, if you can measure up all those beginning, beginning behaviors, like losing control in this area, promising myself I'd stop in this area and not being able to, telling myself I'd give money to charity if I just stopped doing this and not doing it and not giving the money. And if you can identify all those beginning stages, there is no security for you saying you won't be one of them. And then there are other things that I've done that have helped. For example, um, I once worked out to as close as I could to the pound or whatever currency you, you use, how much money I've lost to addiction. So even though I wasn't uh, bankrupt or broke because of my addiction, putting pen to paper and working out how many hours and hours and hours um, um, and how much money that relates to um, that I've spent were these kind of like shocker exercises. Not enough to keep me sober, but enough to say, wow, look what effect this addiction can have in my life. All right. The first week I came into SA, I heard the owner of a top shelf magazine had died. I knew recovery was for me and acting out was my was for my past. Do you believe in God incidences? Yeah, I mean, the program believes in God incidences, you know, spiritual awakenings. I've still yet to get a grasp on exactly what that means. But I have a book um, um, on my like I, a notebook on my night table. And it's things that hold on a second, things that I thought wouldn't work and God sorted out. And it's these mini miracles, these maxi miracles, but things that I thought I never could do and God pulls through. So I absolutely do believe in that. And that is nothing to do with being religious. That is things that I've seen of this higher power, this force greater than me, that is somehow doing things that I could not and work out for myself. As someone who has had your family involved in courting and marriage, do they know about your program? Um, I don't know how much they know. I know that as a teenager, I got into a lot of trouble. Um, my addiction led to, you know, the police knocking at the door over different things. So I know that they knew that there was a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stuff. Um, I know that they know, um, that I really fell in the area of the internet and pornography and stuff like that. I do not know if they know the extent to my addiction. That doesn't matter. Um, they also do, I again, I don't know if they know I have bipolar, but they definitely know that, you know, I, my mental health isn't, uh, you know, perfect. So they know, they know somewhat. It's probably like, you know, the kind of situation, like, the child doesn't think that their mum or dad knows anything, but actually the mum and dad knows like so much. <laughs> I wonder if it's one of those cases, but either way, um, they do know to a certain extent, um, but not because I sat down with them and told them. All right, this next question. My sponsor is giving me the green light of dating. On one hand, I have a desire for a family and to move forward in life. But on the other hand, I see that in my mind, there is also a hope for some magical connection out there that will somehow transform my reality and solve a bunch of problems. Is this normal? And how free of this thinking do you think someone has to be in order to move forward in dating? 
So that's a really good question. Um, I think that the main thing I would say is what my sponsor often tells me. These kind of things are okay to be thought. You're human, you know, not even just because you're a sexaholic. Like, which single, uh, you know, eligible age kind of person doesn't want to have a magical connection with someone? So first of all, to validate, like, how normal that is. And the question is... What are your actions because of that? You know, is it to try and, you know, sleep with the person as soon as you go out with them to see if that connection is there and to see if they're, you know, you have that spark? Or is it that you are thinking, oh, I wish I had that emotional connection. Can you imagine if I'm still going to make sure to be reasonable, to take things slow, to check in with my sponsor, to treat this person with respect? So these thoughts can be thoughts. They don't have to translate into action. And uh, last question, um, ever feel the need to explain to people from your past, from your faith community or others, that you were not a sinner, but rather a sick person who needed to get better? No, because my actions say more than any words I could do, which is why I've never formally sat down with my siblings and done a step nine um, and gone through all of my wrongs. It's why my amends to these people, to my community, to my family, to my friends is to be more present than I've ever been before, is to be more caring, is to remember the things that are important to them and to ask them, you know, about them. And that's my way of saying, you know, I'm not that person anymore. All right, Malky. Well, thank you so much. Um... At this point, I do want to remind everybody that we do have a seventh tradition. You can go to the life site and get go to there. And I've also put a link in. Um, is there any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with us about this overall topic? Um, and if not, I mean, we'd love to hear those. And then close us out with the, a program prayer of your choosing. Yeah, I think a lot of the things that we worry about in the program, you know, of am I doing it properly? Is this right? Is this perfect? Like, doesn't like like be your own best friend in the program, you know, in, enjoy the fact that we've got these tools, appreciate the fact we've got people to share them with. And there's no such thing as doing this program right. And you owe it to yourself to figure out what works for me. I'm hearing a bunch of speakers, but not everything they say is what I need to incorporate. But trust like what's resonating. The few comments that you want to scribble down because they mean so much to you, those are the ones. Go and formulate a plan to act on. But, you know, the program is different for everybody. Um, it's not a cookie cutter program and you just got to find your solution within our solution thank you um yeah um, yeah and then just to end off with a prayer you said yes that would be great i'm going to do the very same prayer i started off with the serenity one god grant me the serenity to accept the things i cannot change the courage to change the things i can and the wisdom to know the difference your will not mine be done I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.